Hello and welcome to another episode of Mirror Fidelity. My name is Matthew Lee Anderson. I am your host and guide for the show today. I am joined by Derek and Andrew Wilson. Andrew, it's good to have you back as a regular on the show. Yeah, Um, yeah, right? It's like two weeks in a row, maybe. I think inquiring minds will want to know how you guys are holding up in the midst of coronavirus. We're we're at, I think, all under stay-at-home orders right now, uh, is my guess. Are, Are you guys staying sane? How are you doing? Yeah, I'm I'm staying sane, thanks to you guys and many other Zoom calls like this. Um, yeah, doing very well. Kids are doing good. Uh, it's not not what I choose, but it's gone pretty well considering. It's probably not what your kids would choose either, seeing so much of you. I mean, it's certainly not what I would choose. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there you are, Derek. How are you? Uh, doing okay. Doing okay. Yeah, it's good. Um, we're we've started ministry up again spring quarter for uci and so now it's like all zoom all the time hangouts uh large groups small groups all of it and so um a lot of this a lot of screen talking yeah uh but but god's been very kind uh, in 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 a lot of in all this so yeah yeah you've been well prepared for it by all of your hours arguing on mere fidelity so that grad school, like it was kind of like joking with McKenna, like the years of like Illinois winters for a few months in grad school where there's nothing to do outside and you don't have any money to go anywhere, uh-huh. <laughs> even inside. You're like, OK, we're here in our apartment. This is this is the game. This is the drill. So, well, yeah. Um, in that case, speaking of arguing online, we are uh, uh, now in a position where we are going to have a fun, enjoyable argument together about a controversial subject, which we occasionally do here at Mere Fidelity. We occasionally take issues that people disagree about and argue reasonably and cheerfully with one another about them. In this case, we thought that we would finally <laughs> take up- Reasonably and cheerfully. I love it, yes. <laughs> reasonably, which is the, it's true. I just want um, those two words on so my we thought, I just think that's great. I, well, I do think of you as both reasonable and cheerful, Andrew. Like that, so I think that would be an apt tombstone. I actually think of myself that way as well, but I'm pretty sure that no one else thinks of me that way. <laughs> but, but She's always having a good time. But I but. actually am always having a good time. I think I am really, really happy and very smiley in person. Um, just not on Twitter. Uh, all right. So we thought that we would take up baptism. Uh, and there are a variety of ways in which we can approach the question of baptism. Um, how should the church baptize those who are entering uh, the life of the local church? What does it mean that um, uh, we engage in this practice as a community? How should we do it? So that's what we're going to talk about. Derek, you're a Presbyterian. I- have you always been a Presbyterian? And if not, we talked about this last time, so the answer is no. What was it? What did it take for you to become persuaded by a Presbyterian view of baptism? I, you know, it, that, that question is, is interesting. I, I, I supposed uh, it was a blend of things. One was just reacting. Uh, to views of baptism I had before, uh, just in light of scripture and like, I don't know, historical church theology. Um, I grew up at a non-anom where um, it was just, okay, 
couple of them. Uh, just, hey, uh, when you're ready, when you know you really believe and you're going to like publicly make that profession, um, go ahead and tell us and we'll baptize you. Uh, and, you know, but I, I'd grown up in the church and I always sang to Jesus. I always loved Jesus. I always like prayed to Jesus. And so it was kind of one of those things of like, oh, well, I don't know. Am I really there? Uh, when will I get there? I'm not sure. Um, uh, and then we were at a church. It was like even more aggressively, you know, low church and low sacramental on this. It was a friend's church background, but it wasn't so friendly that they didn't like they, they were just off enough from their historical Quaker heritage that they actually did perform water baptisms. Um, as long as you knew absolutely nothing was happening, this basically just, you know, external sign of an inward, you know, commitment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But really, it's really, really not a big deal. Um, and so, I mean, that's kind of where I grew up. And I, I actually ended up going to college, uh, you know, seminary uh, through like a friend's church uh, scholarship because I was working with students there and I had to take a friend's church theology um, class. And uh, I had read, I was reading their stuff on spiritual baptism uh, versus like just water baptism while at the same time having been going through like historical doctrinal studies on the side and looking at what the church has mostly said about it. And uh, kind of right around the same time that I was like, okay, this, this no taking the Lord's supper uh, is, is bad juju. And Calvin's view looks pretty biblical and good. Um, also uh, moving towards that with my understanding of baptism and especially rebaptism. Um, I came to a conclusion that rebaptism was uh, unnecessary and invalid uh, or I'm not going to say invalid, but like just unnecessary, uh, even for me, because I had been baptized Roman Catholic as a baby, um, uh, subject to the Pope. And which I guess that puts me first in line. If the integralists, uh, take power, they would drag me off before you guys. I don't know. It's true. Uh, but any, any, anyways, um, uh, yeah. So just historical views on, on the, the Catholicity of, the non-Catholicity of rebaptism and some of those things. And then just a broader covenant theology just at, sure. around, around that time. So just adopting the importance of the covenants across uh, the biblical narrative and some of the implications of that. I slowly worked my way and it was a slow, kind of like this explanation, meandering uh, uh, walk towards a Presbyterian view of baptism. We expected so. nothing less than that, Derek. I I knew what I you was. You asked the question. I thought to. I thought we were going to go true. for something. No, more but it, it's helpful context. And here's what I would like to know: within that slow meandering development into the glories that are Presbyterianism, um, what was it that persuaded you that baptizing infants, particularly, was a licit thing to do. Um, I think, you know, the biggest, the biggest argument is uh, the continuity of God's purposes and covenants uh, between the old and new Testament and really the one covenant of grace. And just the fact that salvation is administered. It may be administered differently, but the, the meaning and the reality is the same. And so there's just recognizing the greater continuity between old and new testaments 
than discontinuity than I'd been raised with a more radical, uh, discontinuity between, uh, oh, that's the old Testament and this is the new realizing, oh, actually, you know, the old contains the new in a sense, uh, promise and fulfillment, uh, type and anti-type, all that kind of thing, uh, really started to pull that together for me. Um, so that's the basic point and we can get into the details on that later. So Andrew, when you think about your position on baptism, I'm curious, similarly, like, were you baptized C of E? Were you baptized as an infant? I mean, David Derek was baptized as an infant and as a Roman Catholic. So in one sense, this Presbyterianism is a kind of coming home. Um, were you baptized as an infant growing up? And if so, like, how have your views developed such that you think that it is not licit or scriptural to baptize infants? So I was christened in uh, an Anglican church in London um, as a obviously as a baby. It was a pretty so it was, where Dick Lucas was the minister. He he would have christened me as a baby, and he, my parents got saved through his ministry and um, came to the join the church there at St Helens. And I was then an an Anglican through all the childhood years, and in some ways while at boarding school as well. Although boarding school was a weird time, I was in two churches at once, and not not really in either of them in a way. Um, so I, in that sense, got a very classic Anglican background. Um, but I, I, I mean, I think as with anything, isn't it? You, you're you're making decisions about the kind of view you hold on these things at a relatively young age when you don't necessarily know that much, but you develop a, a bit like Derek's story. I, I think the same would be true for me. You develop an instinct about whether or not something feels like it's right or not. And as you become 18, 19, you start reflecting on these things and asking critical questions about the traditions you've experienced. I'd experienced both. Um, but I think in the end, it was, it, it was, a, again, it was a, a specific text, I think, for a Baptist. But I think most people who've got a covenant theological framework, it'll be at a, a level of 30,000 feet. It's a big picture. It's the way the whole thing fits together. It's the Catholics through the church. It's the kind of things Derek mentioned. And I think often people who reach a Baptistic conclusion, and I'm not a Baptist in the sense of a denominational Baptist. I'm not a Baptist with a capital B in that sense. I just, I'm a credo Baptist, but not a, my church isn't governed that way at all. You know, we, what is it? That we, we drink and we don't vote. So um, completely the wrong way around in many ways. Um, but I think to hold the position that we do on, that I do on baptism and the practice of baptizing believers, not babies, is really something where I think I got a specific passages. And I think probably would see a lot of what Derek's saying about continuity between the covenants, but overall see this as being a point where there seems some pretty clear indications that there is a, a level of discontinuity and that the continuity that exists does not extend to the nature of initiation and the age at which it takes place. And I think those texts are probably what's driven me to become a Baptist and kept me there when, you know, at all sorts of reasons, there's quite a lot of appeal to a Peter Baptist position from the point of view of global Catholicity of the church. And a lot of the stuff I've studied and written in the last few years, the book I wrote with Alistair, the book on the sacraments, you know, these things make you want to be part of this sort of big, happy, global Catholic family where everybody agrees on baptizing babies. And then I go back to the New Testament and I just find myself going, I just don't, I don't see it. In fact, I, I can't, I almost can't quite see how I would see it um, when you get into particular texts. But in a big picture, I kind of find it quite an appealing construct. I just, in the end, I suppose I'm not, conclu- not, not convinced that it's anything more than an appealing construct. So yeah, that's, that's mm-hmm. my that may not be so, so satisfying and hopefully a bit less meandering. Perhaps I don't, I don't know, but, um, but that's, that, I think that's honestly, it's as simple as that for me or it has been. 
anything would have been a bit less meandering than what Derek gave us. So, you guys, you're you the so, one asking the question, Derek. You're the one asking the question, Matt. Look at that. You just, right. you just use Derek. It's, it's not like you're projecting your own problems. I, I'm just saying, in my con- in, in spending so much time with you guys, I'm like internalizing this this yeah. self-criticism. I'm not sure it's that healthy for me, Matt, to be honest, to be hanging out with you this much. <laughs> it's probably true. <laughs> That's certainly true. So, okay, within that, so here are some of the questions that I think I have about infant baptism or non-infant baptism. Andrew, I think this one is for you. Um, when we think about the faith that saves, such that there's a faith that would be confirmed by the church or would be um, expressed in and through our entrance into the church through baptism. Um, one question is, is, is that the right description of sort of what's going on within baptism, within a, a sort of non-infant baptism account? The second question that I have is, what is the nature of that faith that allows for that uh, confirmation or that expression to occur? And here's 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 a a question that I just I've had for a long time. What do you do with people who say have significant cognitive disabilities who may not be able to articulate um, certain types of commitments where we would be able to assess or evaluate the nature of their faith? Um, the reason why I ask that question is because um, Individuals with cognitive disabilities seem in certain ways similar to infants, right? Uh, in that they're persons, mm-hmm. they're persons made in the image of God. They have the full dignity, full stature, full, you know, everything. And uh, yet they don't have the ability to communicate necessarily in the same ways that are at the same levels of depth and so on uh, that um, cognitively adept adult human beings have. So, I think that's 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 one question I have. What is this nature of the faith that gets expressed, and how does that work out on a Baptist view with individuals who may be at the margins of what they can articulate? Yeah, very good. Um, so I'm going to start with the first one, and then I work to the second one, which is obviously, as you would know, very personal to me because exactly the situation my daughter, who I can hear from right here, is in, and her name is Anna. So I've often thought about writing a, a tract or a, just a blog post entitled Anna Baptism. I just, I, I love the idea of doing, and I probably will one day, just to sort of probe the exact question you're asking for that reason. It's something that's obviously come, it's very personal to me. So for, for those who don't know, my daughter's nine, but she is uh, sort of cognitively at about the age of nine months and will probably always be somewhere around there uh, because of her regressive autism and she has childhood disintegrative disorder and that, that probably means she won't ever get to the place of cognitive expression that we would talk about and even for quite a young child. I think, but to ask the first question first, I think if I can do this and just go and go to a specific text, because I just think it really helps. Like, but but a, a kind of locus classicus for a Baptist would be somewhere like Colossians 2, 11 to 12. And this just helps me answer the question of what I think is going on in faith in baptism. So in him, as it in Christ also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so I think if I was going to specific texts rather than 
what I think, you know, legitimately either thought experiments in the case you raised or specific parental questions like the one I'm talking about. If I started, though, with a specific text, I think I'd say that the nature of faith in the person being baptized, I think baptism to me is an expression of faith on two sides, is the expression of faith that of the church in the promises and obviously conceivably in the family as well, but the church as the family of God in the promises of God to unite this person with Christ and incorporate them into the body of the church. But it's also a statement, it's also a reality of faith and a profession of faith on behalf of the person being baptized. And I think that faith in both, but specifically in the baptizee or baptizands, is is the that is the faith that involves that person being buried with Christ in baptism and being raised with raised with Christ and faith in the power of God who raised Jesus from the dead and that they effectively those three things that Paul describes as happening together I don't think they're the only things that you believe of course you believe in one God you believe in you probably believe the creed in almost every case you'd have you'd know all of that by the time you got to be baptized or at least you'd know most of it um you believe in Christ dying for sins you'd believe in his substitution all, all those sorts of themes but I think in the end that faith that even at a fairly minimal level is expressing the idea that you're burying your old life raising rising again to a new one and you're doing that through faith in god and in that that god is the same god that raised jesus christ from the dead i feel like it's a pretty good shorthand summary and obviously i don't make it a i don't want it to be a procrustean bed on which everything has to fit because there are clearly all sorts of baptism stories in the new testament in which you don't get all of that content and in which you get plenty of other bits of content but to me that's a fairly good shorthand summary of what i think faith involves and so then i go with that and i go to well what am i am i gonna baptize my daughter um and uh, for exactly and i have the mirror image of the question that you're effectively asking which is how does how does a, an adult with a cognitive impairment map onto infant baptism and of course i have the same exact same question but coming from the opposite side um but and i think that my conclusion has been although i don't think so i've got two children with cognitive disabilities um but my son's understanding is much greater he would i probably did gate crash this podcast a week ago stick his head in and start waving at everybody and then walk out again and zeke is definitely in a position where he will be able to understand what who, that Jesus died and rose again for him, and, and so it's not, it's not an. I'm not one of these people who thinks you have to be baptized as an adult with full, you know, and and you, then you become a decision making member of the church at the age of eighteen. I, I've not. I'm nowhere near that. Uh, I see why people are, but that's not me. But I do think that a level of faith, such as something like Colossians two or Romans six or whatever else expresses, is fitting for a subject of baptism, and therefore. I haven't at the moment looked to baptize Anna and I may not because I don't think she would understand what it was. There are other reasons as well. I think she might find the process a little bit scary or bizarre and I'm not sure that it would be meaningful for her at all because I don't think she would understand what it entailed. Um, I'm not set on that. I'm, you know, I'm certainly not committing myself to that position on just in this discussion, but, but I, I think that's not just a forced consistency. It's not like, oh, well, this is my view of baptism, so I better make it the view of my daughter as well. I think it's more that I genuinely don't think what baptism means would be an appropriate act for her to undertake or for me, given what I think baptism means, to apply to her. So I hope that's a, yeah, a start anyway. Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. I mean, th there, there's, yeah. I have questions about whether, like, the, uh, it, within that description, um, 
whether there would be cases where it would be, for instance, ordinary, your, your description of how it could be scary is really interesting. I th- I, that's not something that I've ever thought about, um, how it'd be weird or uncomfortable. I, I do wonder about situations where um, people would be habituated into, say, taking communion regularly, where it would be ordinary for them to do that, and where um, they even if they don't have the kinds of cognitive understandings, they, they, they know that that's a sort of thing yeah. that happens every time they go to church and so on and so forth. And then I wonder like if, if, if that's the case, right, if they're experiencing that sort of practices and are um, able to sort of want to be a member of the crowd to that extent, whether or not something like that would also just apply to, to baptism. You could also sprinkle <laughs> if mode if mode becomes if mode uh, uh, pour sprinkle those are all signs of the outpouring. No, of the that's spirit that's true. Derek, sprink, but, uh, sprinkling with what I'll do mo- is mode the mode mode shifts. Man, mode is mode is Adia. Derek, when God willing, so. when God willing, you die before I do. I will bury you by sprinkling a little bit <laughs> of your head and leave it. There. <laughs> hey, at least you're going to be there to bury him. That's more than I'll I'll do for him. So. Oh man. But I'm not ordained, so I don't have to do that. Um, So, Derek, I have a similar question for you, right? Like, I think, because I think this this is a question where the difference really does come to bear, right? Like, whose faith is it and uh, what grounds or constitutes that faith that allows for infants to be baptized? Is it the faith of the parents? Is it like vicariously being attributed to the the child? Or do we just tell a story about the faith of the church? Like, how's that go? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. You know, the Reformed, they all like, hey, infant baptism, we, we we share certain arguments across the board. And then and then things go, uh, there's a variety of responses when it comes to things like presumptive regeneration or uh, that sort of thing. You know, I think when it comes to verses, you know, uh, could, you, could you just explain? I think Andrew, I know what that means, but could you just explain what that means? Just in case, I've not actually heard that term. I can kind of guess what I think it means, but. Like, the, well, there's a presumption of regeneration in the children of, of right. uh, the church who are baptized and that sort of thing. Um and so uh, some people appeal to that. Some people don't. They just they don't find it necessary or plausible or whatever. Um, f- when it comes to verses, though, again, you know, Andrew goes to Colossians 2. And that's important for me as well because of the link between circumcision and baptism. But, you know, I go back to Abraham in Genesis 15 and 17. Um, Abraham believes, right? He believes that uh, God will give him heirs. Right, that's the promise he believes in Genesis 15, uh, and at that moment, because he just trusts, um, he is uh, he is justified by faith, uh, and that is um, the beginning of the covenant where God promises He's going to give him offspring and so on and so forth, um, and then later He's given the sign of circumcision as the sign of that covenant promise that God makes to him. And that covenant promise and that sign um, are then to be applied uh, to Abraham and his whole household, uh, including his his children. And that, that is a sign. So that's a sign of a faith in God's 
justification. And then later, all over the all over the Old Testament, it's a circumcision is a sign of re, of regeneration. It's a sign of cleansing. It's all these kinds of things. It's that in the Old Testament, and yet the Old Testament commands that it be applied to uh, all of Israel. Uh, you know, uh, well, all males in Israel, uh, adults and children. And so, um, whatever that faith is, uh, whatever the sign, whatever the faith that 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 sign is a sign of, apparently it's not a violation for that sign to be applied to the children of Israel, the the, the children of believers in Israel. Um, and so that carries forward into the way that I read the New Testament, the way I read circumcision being applied uh, and, and baptism as, as a continuity sign. It, it, it's, it's still the sign of regeneration. It's still the sign uh, that, that, that vindicates and, and, and testifies to our uh, engrafting into the people of God and um, the fulfillment that we have in Christ, right? Christ is the fulfillment of that sign in the Old Testament. So you've got this one single covenant we've got going on there. Um, and so from there, I, I see that primarily, yeah, you've got the faith of believers, but it's not uh, just individual believers. It's, it's a whole covenant community. Uh, and children, in a, in a sense, are included within the families. Well, they're not in a sense included. They are, they are the members of the families of the heads of the households of Israel, right? And there's a sense in which you could argue um, adults believe for their children. Uh, they apply, they receive promises for their children. They um, involve them in in covenants, Adam and all of his posterity uh, are involved in that covenant. Uh, and all of Abraham's children are involved in the covenant he makes with God by faith. And so um, that's kind of the logic that I've got going. Uh, this is one of those places where I really, you know, I, I know enough to be convinced, but I'm not, you know, up on my hey, let me proselytize others beyond making, you know, infant baptism jokes on Twitter, um, which is fun. This is one of my <laughs> favorite things to do. <laughs> There's just, a, I mean, it's, it's, it's what I can do for the faith. But do you um, like, is it, is it that you like making infant baptism jokes or is it that you like making anti-Baptist jokes? Like, which is really animating this here. I mean, definitely the second if I've seen your Twitter one. <laughs> 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 I think it's pretty much definitely the same. Um, but yeah, so, so I mean, the nature of faith itself is the, the, in in the Bible. It's not just this kind of modern liberal uh, individual. Uh, it, it, it's the 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 it's it's involving. It's corporate. It's it's it, so. Anyways, I'm, I'm rambling. I'm just I'm loving. It. I think if we could telecast in. what just happened there, Derek said it's not just this modern liberal individual thing. And Matt and I both almost like swallowed all of the air in our rooms <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> Um, Listen, well, I, I'm, I mean, I'm, that's, I'm, I'm that's people just, who believe you have to believe something in order to have faith. But anyway, you just went Brad Gregory on everyone <laughs> where you're I like, went, oh, you know, you know, what caused modernity. Actually, that's who did it. That was my that was my that was my Alistair can't be here. So I'm going to basically quote Alistair and bring him into the conversation. 
as if he was a participant. Uh, so Canales' way of doing it is different, isn't it? So because I had this discussion on the on a blog with him a few years ago, where his way of doing he believes that in a sense the way he would have come at a text like Colossians two or Romans six would be to say, I think infants do have faith because infants are the most trusting, pure kind of faith that there is because they trust everything their parents tell them and so on. So his is quite a different defense of the practice. And that's what you alluded to at the beginning, isn't it? That there's a number of different ways of trying to defend this practice. And and people, some people would say it's a presumption of re regeneration. Some would say it affects regeneration. Some would say that the child is already regenerate or at least is already believing because they are in the purest form of faith there is some would say no it's got nothing to do with that it's just the way that the parents do it and therefore the church is the and alistair sort of toggles between a couple of these i think in the way he defends it and he well, and, and and that's kind of my thing is it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a little bit of an either or like the 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 child's you know trusting of their parents also presumes that their parents are in a sense trusting for them uh the the, the children children believe their parents and trust their parents and depend on their parents faith in many ways but there's still a faith of their own and so there's this dependent cascading faith you know again like i said a lot of people have different logics there my basic baseline uh assumptions here have to do more with the continuity of the covenant and and my assumption is that like i i don't actually see um the nature of the church changing so radically that that um the objects of the covenant sign are now shrinking uh, like it, it, it expands out to women, but then it shrinks away from children. Uh, and there's nothing in the New Testament itself that points me to assume that. So the children of believers are made holy in 1 Corinthians 7. The promises are for you and your children. And we have the household baptisms. These are the these are these basic verses that make a heck of a lot of sense on some broad infant baptism position and i have no command against it and so my, my thing is i basically have the assumption that the burden of proof is on the baptist the anabaptist to say that infant baptism is an unbiblical practice and i don't think there is anything in the new testament that points me away from that it like they point a lot oftentimes will point to all these all these texts where uh, believers are being baptized and i'm like yeah awesome we baptize adults who believe all the time that like that's something we do uh, and so my basic assumption is um the burden of proof is on the other side to prove that we shouldn't be doing it and i don't see anything in that regard so that's that's more so when it comes to like the nature of faith this may be yeah. we, this may be a weak answer for you but that's not really where my logic on this has camped out so yeah yeah Alistair would have been a better guest to ask that question on that one. Well, it's it's an interesting answer all the same. I mean, there's the, the, highlighting that there are different ways of doing these things. I could imagine um, a position on infant baptism that wouldn't, for instance, say it's the parents' faith that is in kind of doing the work here, but it is actually the faith of the believing community and the expectation that all children born to adult Christians are going to spend a lot of time in the believing community. And for them to participate in that, they inherit the faith of the believing community, not the biological parents, right? And so you do have these, these traditions within the early church where um, uh, biological parents are not present at the, the baptism of their children, right? And where there does seem to be real discontinuity between the Old and New Testaments is in the language around um, 
natural family bonds and their centrality to faith. I mean, you have to deal with, I, I, I get that these are like super controversial these days, but people have to account for what Jesus says in Mark over and over about, unless you hate your mother and father, you shall have no part of me. Right. And, and there's this destabilization, the relativization of natural family bonds. And so there are ways of building, um, defenses of infant baptism that don't appeal to that kind of architecture, right? That 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 locate the continuity between the blessings of Abraham and the faith that he has, and that being transmitted to his progeny. Um, that that locate that more within the structure of the church and the practices of the church per se, rather than in um, the uh, blood relationship, just as such. Yeah, um, and I, I think for me, obviously. We, you, we could argue the talks about burden of proof. I, I, I think, obviously, as a Baptist, I think it's exactly the other way around. I think you don't have any instances of something happening in the New Testament. You need the burden of proof on you. And, and I also think that the burden of proof is on somebody who says that uh, that's either that somebody who does not believe in the power of God who raised Christ from the dead should be baptized, even though that's how what baptism is is described. But I think that's why the, the there are various different ways of doing this approach although i think there are clearly lots of examples of where that's true there's lots of charismatic there's lots of people who defend the charismatic gifts in very different ways than i do but i think it's to me it's not quite enough to say well there's a bunch of different ways to do this i don't really know who's got the faith it might be the baby it might be the family it might be the church it might be none of the above it might be the baby one day in the future but it doesn't really matter because it's about the continuity of the covenants to me then takes us back to and this is just the one i'm using today but because there's boring to quote lots of them, but takes me back to Colossians 2 and say, okay, well, so whose faith are we talking about? Like, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That, that's not the parent's faith, and it doesn't sound at all like it's the faith of the church without including the individual. And it sounds very much like that is the faith of the individual who actually came to believe that God raised him from the dead, and that's why they got baptized. And so either we have to say that text is not normative, for in the sense that's how you Colossians got baptized, but not how it happens to everybody, which I think would be a stretch. Or we have to say that the individuals who are the proper subjects of baptism are those who believe in God who raised from the dead. And of course, the, the whole point about the discontinuity of the covenants appears in that very text, because the circumcision he's talking about is not a circumcision of the flesh. This is the circumcision of the, of the spirit, the circumcision of Christ. He's specifically talking to people who mostly haven't been circumcised as Jews. And that's why the letter to the Colossians is written in the way that it is. So to me, it's a very, if you had to have a burden of proof, which I don't think I, obviously we could argue who has to meet which, I would go to Colossians 2 and say, well, that's a pretty good start because that's both, both teaching me that faith is required to be a proper subject of baptism and faith in the resurrection of Christ, not just a faith of, I trust my mum because she gives me milk or whatever it might be, but also right. that there is a discontinuity between the nature of circumcision in and the nature of baptism as even prescribed in, in verse 11. So to me, that and it's one, and obviously we could do this about lots of different passages, but to me, that that's a that's why I like text. I want to get into specific text. I'm not, I can see the appeal of the the proper subjects argument, but I have, I do think that there are examples of people who are implicitly excluded from the covenant at the moment Jesus dies and rises, namely Jewish people who are not yet aware or who perhaps have rejected the gospel, who would be in the covenant in the first scenario and not in the second. So I don't think it's, in a sense, if you take your examples of Galatians, you know, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male, female. I think you'd say, well, on the male, female one, the covenant gets wider, 
but actually you still have to be a believer in order to be able to be included, which is why Jewish covenant members who reject Christ are not in the new covenant and they were in the old. So I'm not, I don't, I don't think that that sort of proper subjects defense quite works. Pro- are you saying that I have a proper subject defense? <laughs> I, I'm saying, I, 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 I'm saying, I think that you're the, the comment, the comment about the, in order to defend infant baptism, you say the covenant gets wider, not narrower, which you always, you know, so you often right, hear this right, 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 I'm right, saying, right. well, I think that is true of the example of women, but I don't think it's true of the example of Jews who have, who don't accept Jesus as Messiah. So I don't think it works. I think the point is faith, isn't it? The women can believe and unbelieving Jews don't believe. And of course, in my argument, allies Colossians 2, I don't think an infant at six weeks old believes either. Um, and that's why I think Alistair's defense of it, in the sense of, yes, they do, I actually find, if I was going to be a pedo-baptist, I think I'd probably have to be that sort of pedo-baptist to make sense of the relationship between faith yeah. and baptism I can see in the texts. Yeah, and again, this is this is me copping out as, like, this is not my general area. Like, this is, that's not something I drilled down deep in. That's not the core sure. of my, of the lo- of my logic here. Um, and I think this is, this happens with all sorts of things. You believe, you believe position X and there's three or four undergirding kinds of, uh, arguments. You're like, ah, these three out of four, I've got pretty well. This fourth area, I still haven't quite figured out where, uh, you know, I'm a Calvin. I, I believe in predestination, et cetera, et cetera. But like, okay, the difference between passing over actively electing, uh, both to damnation and to, so that for me is kind of where this, this uh, part of the uh, of the infant baptism pie has has been it's and so um, but when it comes to when it comes to uh, faith and when it comes to the sign and when it comes to expanding all that the continuity thing um, you know I, I do think when you when you look at the Old Testament you do see that again circumcision in the Old Testament was a sign of faith it was a sign of Abraham's belief in God's promise it was a sign of regeneration. It was a sign of active spiritual trust in the God of Israel. And yet Abraham was commanded to apply this same sign to children. Eight days. Like this is so and unless you're going to radically say that the say that the, the the nature of faith in the covenant God and his promises um is that different from the old and new testament um, like it, it was appropriate back then to apply a sign of active, regenerating, cleansing faith to children in the old covenant. It, it, I do not see why that cannot be the exact same thing. It wasn't Abraham's kids who believed, uh, Abraham's, the, the promise to Abraham, right? He didn't have any kids at the, at the point. And they, and Isaac may, may or may not have, we don't know, uh, uh, believed, uh, when he was circumcised, uh, that's you kind of go down the line there. And so whatever you think that relationship of faith is, that the basic relationship in the Old Testament was still like, hey, parents, believers. Um, the, and so I, I'm that, that's kind of where I, I see like a, I still see that significant continuity. I don't see any any anywhere in 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 the New Testament pointing me to a different relationship. And I see the household baptisms reinforcing that. And I see the children of believers being made holy reinforcing that. So there, there's, there's enough continuity there for, for the way that carries for, for carryover for me there. I don't so know. I feel like household baptisms 
Hazel Badgers and Shawley are a they're a Rorschach test, aren't they? People you see in them hey, this is kids, and, and I see in them as saying, well, you know, then the whole household believed, and they all who heard the word were baptized. So, I, in some ways, I don't think they prove either way, do they? they the people who are baptized. No, I just it, that's a that's it, a subsidiary. It, it is, I, I that's a subsidiary. The one challenge it raises, which I think is helpful as a little B Baptist, I think it does make it unlikely that every time you get a household, everybody there's over eighteen. I quite buy that, uh, but I think the idea that you that, it, that they must have included kids who are too young to understand is a, is a stretch. But again, I go back to I think there's nothing in the New Testament to make the case that the, the, the cogn- that active faith in the work of God is required on the subject of baptism. I'd go back to Colossians two and all the other texts we've talked about. So okay, where I think it is exactly that clear, I think this is saying this is what baptism is is not the same as circumcision, which is why it's the same as a, it's paralleled with the circumcision of Christ, but it's not paralleled with the circumcision of the flesh. And I think if Paul had wanted to say that baptism replaces the circumcision in a direct way, that would have been a very useful argument for him to have made in a letter like Galatians, where that's the whole. The whole thing is trying to get them to stop doing, but he never makes that argument at all. He uses very different arguments, and I, I think that's an indication that we're not dealing with a direct correspondence or transfer here like we are in some other areas between the covenants. Um, I know we're not going to convince each other, but I, to me, that that's why I would say yeah, even yeah, if there yeah. is a burden of proof to be met, I feel like Colossians 2 is a pretty so, good place to go. So this is really helpful. It's, it's clarifying for me in a lot of ways. I think I have one final question on this, and maybe it's for Derek. Maybe it's for both of you. Um, What's the relationship between baptism and regeneration? I know, Derek, you said this is not something that you like. This is one of these details that you don't necessarily want to hang something on. But it seems to me that um, it is one of the like underlying divisions here or one of the central questions that you can ask. If baptism is the sort of thing that is a sign of the entry of the person into the people of God, if that's a fair description, then if baptism does not regenerate, if it's like presumptive regeneration, et cetera, does that entail that there are unregenerate people in the people of God? And if so, how should we make sense of that? Does, does, does it in one sense require a, a sort of really strong doctrine of the invisibility of the church? Um, is that a way of doing it? Like, how do you, how do we reconcile, like, the actual work of God in regenerating the believer with the mechanism of their entrance into the people of God? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I just like to say that this, that's twice this show, Derek has said I've had a good question. <laughs> I was about to say the exact same thing. <laughs> when you're hot, you're hot. I mean, you're hot, you're on it, you're on it. Um. You know, so for me, uh, Westminster talks about it being uh, a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. It's a sacrament ordained by Christ, um, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church again, but as a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace, engrafting, all that sort of thing. Um, I do not think that baptism, so I, I'm not a baptismal regeneration guy. I do not think that baptism regenerates you. Uh, I automatically. I do think God can, right? So I, I think baptism can regenerate you because God can do all sorts of things. For some people, he'll be, he'll be regenerate you in the baptism. Some people regenerates before. Uh, some people he's probably regenerated after. Not, not just some, a lot. Um, 
uh, as for uh, the church and the baptized, um, yeah, I think that the church, the visible church, is a mixed body. I think that scripture teaches that teaches that you know you got wheat and tares, all that kind of thing. I think that um, the assumption is that it's a mixed body throughout the New Testament, and I I, I think <laughs> that's one of the problems with uh, with certain kinds of um, certain kinds of Anabaptist or or Baptist arguments that like no you've you've only uh, you've only got the pure. Um, You've only got pure believers. You've only got regenerate uh, folks in the church, and and that that puts um, that puts a lot of pressure uh, on elders and pastors to have like this. Um, I don't know. Yeah, sure, spiritual discernment, but but almost like a magic radar of whether or not a profession profession of faith and 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 an outward change in life is like really legit or not. Uh, before you baptize somebody and then when they apostatize or they walk away two years later uh, what was it was your radar off or did they truly apostatize or, or whatever it is and and then that opens the door for all sorts of um, really intense rigorism uh, about um, who can be baptized and 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 who's truly a part of the church and whether or not we can uh, maintain fellowship with folks who are true believers, but they're maybe weak in faith at the moment or they're struggling. So, I mean, that, that kind of, you know, I, it's funny, Calvin, Calvin's section in the institutes on this is actually just really pastorally useful on thinking about the purity of the church and patience and not being hasty about, um, you know, ripping up the wheat with the tares, uh, in a haste to have an absolutely immediately, uh, pure church in the moment. But, but it gives you uh, some pastoral space to be slow and discerning and gentle as a pastor with folks. And so um, I think, I mean, and we've kind of wandered away a little bit from, from the question of, of infant baptism, whether baptism ge- uh, regenerates, but that's kind of where the question went. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think that baptism automatically regenerates, and I don't think that it, it uh, I do think we have a mixed church, uh, just like we did in the Old Covenant uh, in, in the Old Testament, and we do in the New Testament, as is revealed in the New Testament letters. When people go out, uh, they were not um, they were not truly of us, uh, and they revealed that when they left. Although presumably they were baptized, um, as John talks about. And so, anyways, I'll just wrap. to be clear, we did not wander away from the subject. Uh, <laughs> I didn't wander. I'm just saying the way you set up these questions, the way you set up these questions. No. Pretty sure that's not the case either, Derek. No, uh, Andrew. Any final words for, yeah, I, for I us? Yeah, I just to me that the Baptist answer to this question is is just much simpler and cleaner. It's that you, yeah, of course you don't know for certain that everyone you baptize is going to persevere to the end. Of course you don't. Of course there's a mixed church. I, I've got no idea. I've seen plenty of people who I've baptized or we've baptized as a church wander from faith tragically later, and there's no way any practice of baptism could stop that without going into lunatic level rigorism, as Derek is mentioning. I totally agree with him. But I think that there is still a nevertheless a huge difference between baptizing somebody where you have a credible profession of faith and a change in lifestyle and 
what we would use is almost like a public testimony, but certainly somebody saying, these are the things I, I believe Jesus is Lord. I believe I turn from my sin. Do you renounce Satan? Yes, all that stuff. That's very different from trying to appraise whether or not you've got regenerative faith in the life of a six-week-old, which I think we'd have to agree. You'd go up and look at them and see, well, yeah, they'd basically look and respond pretty much like any other six-week-old, whether they're Muslim or atheist raised or whatever it is. And I, and I think because the credible profession of faith is something you're looking for, you've got a much better chance of enacting. You're, you're not saying that just because I don't know that baptism will necessarily only apply to people who are regenerate, that's not the same thing as saying, therefore, I can baptize people regardless regardless of whether or not they are. I think you're looking for evidence that they are and that evidence, there are New Testament indications for that all over the place. And so I think the Baptist position, at least my position would be that repentance and faith and the gift of baptism and the gifts of the Lord's Supper are all intended for the exact same people. And that repentance and faith are, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, who we haven't even talked about in this discussion, all of those gifts in that sense are given to the, the very same people. And if you end up in a position where you say, well, we baptize this person, we don't think they're repentant yet, we haven't yet seen any credible profession of faith, we don't think that they've got the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, they might, but we're not sure, and we're not going to give them the Lord's Supper. I just find myself going, that is a total, to me it sounds like a total muddle, and indicates that something in the very pristine structure is has gone inconsistent and wrong somewhere and it's much cleaner just to do what it seems to me that the apostolic church did which is say yeah we, we preach the gospel people repent and believe we baptize them and we give them the lord's supper and they are filled with the spirit and if not then they're not so that's and somehow their kids are holy and sanctified and set apart. And, and the promises are for those kids, I'm too. I was writing that section of my commentary. My and those com and, and, and but I don't think throwing that in at this stage is going to change anything. No, I, I don't think so. I had to. It, it does seem like, though, that if we accuse Derek of wandering, I just have to observe that here we are talking about infant baptism and our one charismatic is going to make it a referendum on the gifts of the I Spirit. I didn't say that's, that's, about the gifts of the Spirit. gifts <laughs> of the Spirit. And that, I would hope, was pretty orthodox. Oh, all the way down oh the line. sure. Sure, Andrew. <laughs> well, um, gents, this has been a terrific conversation. Thanks for letting me ask my questions of you guys. Uh, it's certainly been helpful for me. Hope it's been helpful for those of you who have listened in to our conversation. Uh, I'm sure that this will come up again at some point, as long as Andrew keeps joining us on the show, because we like trolling him so much about various things. So I there's still... more to talk about here. We know that um, when we get Alistair back, we'll, we'll carry it on at some point. Um, thank you to our audience, you guys, for your time and attention during this time. We know it's a, a crazy season for lots of you, and we do hope that you are bearing up uh the suffering that you're under well um we are grateful for your patronage for your support of this show if you'd like to join the merry band of people who are helping keep us afloat the link to do so is in the show notes at mere orthodoxy and until next time this has been mere fidelity <laughs>